Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19. Our guest, Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning, Brian. Um, I don't have a lot of uh, new news to work from, so I'm going to dive straight into the mailbag for questions. Our first comes from Deanne, who does not mention where she is from but I am assuming uh, she is from the this part of the Bay Area. She writes, I take a weekly dance class at the Y, which about 25 people attend. I am 80, by far the oldest person and the only one wearing a mask. Have COVID cases fallen far enough for me to feel safe dancing without a mask? Well, that's a, a big question that so many people have. Deanne appropriately notes that at 80, she is at increased risk for bad a bad outcome if she gets COVID. Still, if she's up to date with her vaccines, including the most recent one that appears to be terribly important, she has considerable protection. This is one of those situations, Brian, where the individual has to sort of weigh the pros and cons. I look at the situation and say, you know, uh, I'm at increased risk because I'm well over 65. And I'm not comfortable being indoors without a mask on, even though I'm up to date with my vaccines and even though I have access to uh, medication like Paxlovid. So I'm not taking the risk right now. So what does right now mean? We are clearly coming down from the zenith of cases we experienced in early January. That's really great news. But it's like you know, we reached the top of the mountain and we're coming down, but we're still pretty high up on that mountain. There's still quite a few cases of COVID going around. And it's primarily hospitalizing those people, number one, who are not vaccinated, number two, who are over 65 and especially over 75. So the end's in a high-risk group and there's still a lot of COVID going around. My advice would be not to do it right now. Is there a, a particular threshold or, or trigger you would look for when you might feel safe uh, unmasking in a, a small crowd indoors, like her 25-person dance class? You know, I keep saying that we need to do a calculus. We weigh things on one hand, and then we weigh things on the other and see what that calculus comes out to. But, you know, it really comes down to emotionally how you feel about it. Um, again, Deanne has to ask, how protected is she? from vaccination? Does she have good access to medication? That is, does she have a good relationship with a physician or healthcare provider who could prescribe it in a very timely fashion? The earlier, the better. If the answer to those things is yes, and she's in otherwise very good health, she may look at that calculus and say, you know, um, there's so few cases now, which I think is gonna be the case, hopefully within the next six or eight weeks, um, that I'm gonna take that risk. So I, I would say the answer to your question um, is a very um, nuanced one, and there's not really a 
the same answer for every individual. But the cases right now are still high, although coming down, I would wait uh, until they're appreciably lower. Then typically we see a nadir of cases um, in the early spring. So I'm got my fingers crossed for that. Scott in San Francisco wrote in to ask, what is the latest data on the likelihood of getting long COVID? How does it differ by age? And how does it differ by whether or not you previously recovered from a COVID infection? Right. Well, the the number of people or the percentage of people getting long COVID, is, um, the good news is that the number is coming down. Uh, it's been it's lower by almost um almost a half of year in the last uh eight to ten months. So that's really good to see. The CDC numbers suggest that it's around six, six point two percent of people, but that six point two percent sounds awfully precise and and frankly, um it's just a soft number. So I'd say that a good number to work from is let's say about one out of every 20 people are going to get long COVID. Some of those people are going to get very mild symptoms that persist just a few months and go away. Other people are going to experience really profound symptoms and on the extreme end of things just don't go away. And now we're seeing people who develop symptoms not immediately, but months later, uh, particularly neurological symptoms. uh, And that's a great concern. So long COVID right now, we don't know how many Americans are suffering from it. The high estimate is around 18 million. It's an enormous number. It's ta- we're talking about numbers of like uh, type two diabetes. So it's an enormous number of Americans who get this. Who's at risk? If you had a really bad case of COVID, like you were hospitalized, you're at much greater risk of developing long COVID than if you had a mild case. That said, We do see long COVID in people who even have an asymptomatic infection or a very, very mild case, like a very mild cold. So it can occur in anybody, but the more severe your illness, the more likely. The older you are, the more likely you are to develop long COVID. So a 30-year-old is less likely to develop long COVID than an 80-year-old. So those are two things we see. The most profound risk, and we don't have a good explanation for it yet, is females are more likely to get long COVID than males. And while there are a lot of hypotheses for that, we don't really understand why. Well, women generally have a higher incidence of autoimmune conditions. So to the extent that that some of the illness that is getting lumped into the bucket of long COVID is autoimmune, that, that would make sense. There'd be a higher rate among women. That's right. And that's the going hypothesis. It's really an interesting observation. Um, As you state, females have a much, much higher instance of autoimmune disease. And in general, females tend to handle infectious diseases better than males, not with every specific infectious disease. But in general, females tend to have a better immune response. That is, they handle infectious diseases in general, better than males do. So you've got that interesting balance going on. As you were implying in your statement, Brian, long COVID is not one disease. 
uh, it's become very clear now that there are multiple different pathways of pathologies that occur after an infection with COVID that can lead to that bucket that we call long COVID. So there's probably multiple different causes, and certainly the autoimmune hypothesis is a very strong one. So I, I don't want to let the second part of, of Scott's question drift by. Um, you, you said roughly one in 20 people get long COVID, but he asked about people who've previously recovered from COVID. Um, you, you have said before, you're rolling the dice again on your second infection. Are the odds better on the second roll of the dice? It depends what study you read. Um, some studies have suggested that the second and third episode of COVID, while you still can get long COVID, it's less than the first episode. Other studies have suggested that there's very little protection, if any, with the second infection or the third infection. Bottom line is we really don't know, but the real bottom line is that if you've had one episode of COVID, please don't think that you're immune to getting long COVID, that you're just going to roll through it the second one or the third one, just like you did the first one. There's no guarantee for that. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg. This is a segment we call Corona Calls, and we try to spend it answering your questions. If you want to put one in live over the phone lines, the number is 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008. Dr. Swartzberg, let me grab one more from the inbox uh, while our engineer sorts through the callers on the phones. A uh, person who did not list their name at the bottom of the email writes, I'm 69 years old, and I have type 2 diabetes. Should I consider having a measles booster? I know it's not strictly COVID, but you're an infectious disease specialist. Right. Um, and someone who suffered from measles when I was 30 years old or 31 years old, and it was absolutely the worst infectious disease or worst experience I've had with illness. Um, the good news is for the caller, if he or she has received the required series of, of uh, measles vaccine as a child, the evidence suggests that they are protected um, for the rest of their lives. So no booster is necessary, even with the type 2 diabetes. The protection with measles, it's a fabulous vaccine. We get um, almost 98% of people who get both of the, get two of the um, vaccines, measles vaccines, uh, are protected. And that protection goes on we for most people for decades and decades and decades, probably through their entire life. So even though we are now seeing, tragically seeing, um, uh, outbreaks of measles throughout the United States, and especially in Europe, and especially in Eastern Europe, and all the way, and even further east than that, completely unnecessary that people are getting measles like this. Um, the vaccine, if you've got it and you're up to date with that, by that I mean you've had the proper series, you don't need to get it again and you're protected. Let's throw, throw in an addendum that I don't think has made the, the suitable amount of headlines, um, but it's only in recent years that, that we've learned that one of the effects of measles is it basically wipes out your immune system's memory of how to respond to, to other pathogens it's been exposed to. Uh, for a period of up to a, a couple years. It, it results in a, a weaker response to anything else that might come your way. Yeah, you know, that's that's something I'm really glad you <clears throat> that you pointed out. 
um, that doesn't get uh, enough publicity. We know that measles um, kills around one out of a thousand children who get measles. We know that it can cause encephalitis and brain damage in a, maybe three to five out of a thousand. We know that it causes hospitalization in numbers higher than that. It's a serious disease. It's not a, just one of these benign childhood diseases. It's a very serious disease. And one of the complications that's only been recognized in the last two or three decades has been what you just mentioned, and that is immunosuppression. That it's like somebody wipes out our immunologic memory for a few months, 12 months, and even as you point out, it can be longer than that. Where that becomes important is that it's like being a child again, a very young child who hasn't been exposed to a lot of things. Some interesting studies have shown that after measles, that children require take wind up taking more antibiotics over the next two years than children who didn't get measles. Again, suggesting that something has blunted our immune system. And people have died from this. A lot of people in the world, an awful lot of people in the world have tuberculosis. And about 10% of people in the United States still have that bacteria in living in their body, but walled off by their immune system. An episode of measles can reactivate tuberculosis because of our immune system being blunted. And one of the very famous kings of England lost his son because of measles reactivating tuberculosis. So it's it's a, an, an issue that um, keeps giving problems uh, even after the initial episode of measles. All right, let's go to some of the folks who've been waiting patiently on the phone lines at 1-800-958-9008. First up in Berkeley, we have Mary. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. In 2020, I had a, a second Pfizer shot and developed symptoms similar to GCA, according to my doctor. That's giant cell arteritis, the temple headache, and different things. And uh, I, I ended up being sent to an um, a ophthalmologist to see whether or not I actually had it. And it kind of went away after a day or two, but I was really frightened. I'm an artist, and I don't want to lose my eyesight. So I've been afraid to get vaccinated with boosters. I'm trying to decide now whether Novavax might be less likely to um, bring about GCA in some people. And what I understand is that that's a narrowing of, your, of eye arteries and in your eyeball, which could um, cut off blood flow and cause blindness. So I'm wondering if anybody knows anything about whether I'd be safer um, getting the um, Novavax because I do need to get something and I'm, I haven't been vaccinated. I, I did get a mild case of COVID in October. Hmm. Yeah, well, Dr. Mary, um, Mary, um, uh, giant cell arteritis um, is something that occurs it's not particularly rare. It's it um, occurs as we get older, and it's not clear. And, and from my review of the literature, that there is a direct causal effect of the vaccine to developing that. That said, um, it's very hard to prove a negative, and there may be a rare uh, person who does have this reaction from the vaccine. Uh, it's just that it's not clear that that's that's the case. I guess what I'm saying is that if you vaccinate millions of people within two or three days, lots of different things are going to happen to those people that aren't at all related to the vaccine uh, because common things happen. So 
to answer your question more specifically, uh, we don't have enough information about Novavax to tell us that if you had a bad reaction to one of the mRNA, mRNA vaccines, that maybe it would be a good idea to try Novavax. Uh, for some people, it might be. Um, but for something like this, where it's not clear that there's association, maybe in a rare case there is, and you want to do everything you can to make sure you don't get that, I don't think that switching to Novavax is going to lessen or increase your risk. We just don't know. What I would suggest doing is I would talk to a neurologist. I would ask the neurologist to uh, check with uh, all the literature that there is, that is do a very careful literature search to see whether <clears throat> there is any association that's been that's come up. If there's nothing that's been shown to be clearly associated with your problem, then I think that getting the vaccine, whether it's Novavax, if it would make you more comfortable, or one of the two mRNA vaccines, is the safe route to go. Well, let me, Dr. Sportsberg, Mary said she got and recovered from COVID in October. Um, she could treat that as as being akin to a recent booster, right? Yeah, uh, she should look at it as as a recent booster. And what we're seeing with the recent booster, just like we've seen with all the previous vaccines or previous infections, is that immunity wanes significantly in about six months. So she's got some time to um, to get the information she needs to make an informed decision. All right. Uh, let's cross the bay and go to Joel in San Francisco next. Good morning, Joel. Morning. Thank you. Um, I went to a Super Bowl party yesterday with about 20 people in a pretty closed space with no circulation of air, and everybody was screaming, right? So you think I should, and I'm 76 years old, okay? So do you think I should go to Kaiser on Friday and just ask for a test or schedule a test for Friday just for, to be, uh, for a precaution? Yeah, Joel, that's, that's a really um, thoughtful question you're asking. Um, you were in a risky situation. Hopefully no one there was infected or uh, infected with the virus and, and uh, could transmit it. Um, if you want to consider this a high risk exposure, um, then the advice would be at day three, you could do a home test, a rapid home test, and at day five, a rapid home test. Those would be the two things that you could do to give you pretty good assurance that you weren't infected. You could go and get a PCR test as well, uh, as you're suggesting at Kaiser. Um, that's a more sensitive test, and that would give you even better information. But right now, the you're in a situation where it's not clear that you were exposed to anybody with COVID, uh, but you had a high-risk exposure of somebody there had it. So that would be the safest thing to do, either the day three and day five uh, rapid home test, or as you suggested, getting the a PCR tested Kaiser. Joel, let me Very let me fun. back up a step and ask you why why you want the test results. Are are you worried that you might pass COVID on to someone if you were infected? I, um, I would like to know as soon as possible so I know whether to take the Paxlovid. So I feel that if I go to Kaiser and get the test, they know <clears throat> they know I'm positive, then they'll immediately you know issue the uh, paxlovid that's that's the plan gotcha 
so Dr. You know, Schwartzberg, let me let me ask maybe a dumb question. If if that's his concern, early treatment, um, which helps, is there any reason not to wait until you know he feels what might be a symptom to get tested? Yes. I, I think that that's a really interesting point. It doesn't come up very often because most people aren't thinking like Joel is, but the earlier, as you pointed out, Brian, the earlier you take, for example, Paxlovid, the better it's going to work. So taking it when you're asymptomatic or often what we call pre-symptomatic, that is you don't have any symptoms now, but the next day or the two days later, you're going to get symptoms, um, is certainly going to be the earliest possible you could take it in that would give you the highest uh, probability of getting a great response from the medication. So that's an interesting strategy. Again, it doesn't come up very often. It brings up one other point, though, and that is that we're not using, um, for example, Paxlovid enough. And by that, I mean is that an awful lot of doctors are telling patients, well, you know, you've got really a mild case. It's really it's, uh, just a very mild case. There's no reason to give you the Paxlovid. But when you look at who gets hospitalized and when they get hospitalized after they get COVID, it's typically on day seven, eight, nine, or 10. And somebody can be really very mildly ill for a few days, uh, five days, six days, and then crash. And you don't want to wait until that point because five or six days later, Paxlovid can't be given. So if you've got any signs or symptoms of COVID and you're in a high-risk group, and Joel is because of his age, then you'd want to get Paxlovid as early as possible, even if you've got minimal symptoms. And if Joel found he was positive and even asymptomatic, I would take the Paxlovid because he's at higher risk. Super helpful. Thanks. Uh, let's try to quickly squeeze in one final caller. Ron is on the line in Cupertino. Good morning, Ron. Yeah, good morning. So, um, it is it is basically to find out uh, what the truth is about the origin of this virus and uh, COVID and uh, so-called vaccine. Uh, you have massive amount of information in alternative media in regards to this, and you have been bringing this gentleman for years. And uh, and uh, once Ron, Ron, I think we got your question. We have a minute left on the clock. <laughs> So, Dr. Schwartzberg, anything you want to add to uh, the discussions we've had before uh, about the controversies over the origin of COVID? Right. Well, if you poll uh, serious scientists throughout the world, the vast majority believe that this most likely the virus most likely came from nature. That is from animals and the animal being a bat. <clears throat> perhaps with what's called an intermediate host, another animal, and then infecting humans. A minority of scientists, serious scientists, still raise the question is, could this have been a laboratory accident? And the answer is yes, it could have been. So we, it's unlikely we're ever gonna know the answer to this. And there are a variety of reasons why we're not going to know. But the conspiratorial theories of that this was intentionally produced and released, uh, there's absolutely no evidence for that in spite of what um, some people say on the internet. So bottom line, most likely came from bats, either directly to humans or more likely from an intermediate host. The possibility that it came from a laboratory uh, with an accident is possible. Um, beyond that, everything else is highly improbable. 
I should tag on a footnote that a, a laboratory accident does not mean necessarily a human created virus. One scenario would be it was harvested from a wild animal population to be studied and got out of the containment area where it was being studied unmodified. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. No, it means that somebody's working with the virus in the laboratory, like many, many laboratories are, and there was an accident where it got released. All right. Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you so much for spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. That does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or tune in live to Call In Live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. Appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.